0: Welcome to another episode of New Teacher Talk. Are you a new teacher in an urban, suburban, or rural school? We're here to support you. Our podcast channel is intentionally designed to help those who are new to teaching. We talk about the most common challenges that educators experience. And you will find a community of support through this channel and our associated webpage, newteachersguide.org, and our Twitter account, at New Teacher Talk 1. We're the hosts for New Teacher Talk. I'm Dr. Anna. My passion is supporting teachers as they establish and expand their practice to advance student learning. I'm a board-certified early childhood generalist.
1: And I'm Dr. Beth, former high school band director and current educator who values the role that new teachers play in schools and in the lives of the students that they're going to touch during their career. If you are listening to this podcast, either you are or will be a new teacher in the near future, or for others, you might be a new teacher mentor or induction coordinator. Truly, it's no secret that becoming a teacher and being successful is a challenge. Assessment, of course, is one of those major challenges that all teachers face. We have two respected educators as our guest today to talk about student assessment and data literacy. They are Erin Seitz and Adam Larson. Welcome.
0: Please tell us about yourselves and why you're interested in the relationship between curriculum and instruction and assessment. Erin, would you start please?
2: Hi, I'm Aaron Seitz, and I've been teaching in the public school system for 18 years. And um, recently, I work at Synthesis as a teacher trainer. And my interest in curriculum and instruction really has to do with rethinking the way that students interact with schools. You know, we're used to seeing kids walk across the graduation aisle, accumulating a number of awards and a number of credits. And I guess what I'm interested in is how can we use curriculum to not only give them credits and cognitive skills, but what does it mean for a student to be transformed by education? Through the experiences that they have over the course of their K-12 education, what does it mean for them to walk across that aisle and feel like they are a different person than when they started? How can education not only be content-driven or skill-driven, but also how might it be a rite of passage? How might it be a place where students can, can become their best selves as they enter the post-secondary world.
0: Thank you, Erin. That's fascinating to think about. I think that's what we all want is that educational is transformational for our students. Adam, could you tell us what your thoughts are and to tell us about yourself?
3: Sure. So I'm Adam Larson, and I have never been a teacher, at least not in the the K-12 setting. So my background is as a school psychologist. I worked as a psych for a couple of years in a district and then moved into an assessment coordinator, assessment and curriculum type role, and then eventually moved into the assistant superintendent role. My passion in education is connecting people with information. I know enough about teaching, having taught at the college level and done some units here and there with elementary and high school students to know that feedback is the essence of learning and that students need to know where they are in order to know where they need to get. And that can be on any goal. That can be on super traditional, like linear progressions of curriculum. It can be on very non-traditional, like what are our outcomes? What's the what's the purpose of school type questions that are not traditional? Whatever it is, we want to have information for the kids, but also for the teachers the teachers need to have information in their hands or to make game time decisions about uh, what needs to happen next and how well things have been mastered and what the next steps are and that's where my skill set lies is figuring out what people need uh, by asking the right questions and then connecting them with those things so that can be traditional standardized testing could also be data uh, about a kid. Uh, let's, let's collect some information or mine the information we currently have about attendance and involvement and engagement and behavior and those kinds of things. Get them into, into the hands of the people who make the decisions so they know how that student is doing and how they can best support them. Not data-driven teaching, but like data-supported, data-informed uh, decision-making. That's really where I, I fit into this.
0: Thank you, Adam. That's really interesting that you want to look at more global information about a student so that you can understand each individual in a better way to support them.
1: Adam, how can new teachers become acquainted with the district's curriculum where they're hired and then develop assessments to provide data needed?
3: Hopefully there is a curriculum. Uh, You know, hopefully there's something that's been thought out and planned in collaboration between teachers and building and curriculum leaders. So there's something for them to refer to. So that, you know, that could be a binder. Um, that could be a folder full of materials. It can be an online digital curriculum, it can be sort of the, the hidden curriculum by interacting with your mentoring teacher or people that are on the same team, but asking questions early. Where is the curriculum? What am I supposed to be doing? What do we do as a culture here? But there's a, there's a caution. And that is that you also don't want to come in and fully be, I, I don't know, indoctrinated, I guess, in what the district does, especially as a new teacher. I think veteran teachers sometimes are afraid to admit that they are looking forward to having a new teacher with new ideas to say, like, what are the current best practices? What are things that we should know about? I've been doing things the same way for all these years. Don't also be quiet. Be not afraid to ask hard questions about why we do certain things the way that we do so that you don't just fall in line and then we just keep doing things the way that we've always been doing them. That's a real danger. But also watch. So find the materials and find what people normally do. Ask a lot of questions, but then watch. Good districts create space and teacher schedules. They can go observe their peers doing the work, but it's important to know what is happening in other classrooms. Say you're a third grade teacher and there's four other third grade teachers, try to get in and see each one of them and see how they use the material, how they use the standards, um, what they do with their students, so that you can become familiar with how how the rest of the gang does it so that you are at least um, fitting in or a part of what else is happening.
1: I appreciate your comment about the empowerment of new teachers. They come into a new school, they bring that energy, that curiosity about the district curriculum, not being tethered to it fully, having creativity within that realm. But also, then, other veteran teachers who are looking forward to synergizing and collaborating, getting into other classrooms, watching learning how they are activating the curriculum, and then how to develop assessments to provide the data needed to help inform the classroom. What about you, Garin? How can new teachers become acquainted with the district's curriculum and then develop assessments to provide data needed?
2: To echo Adam's last point is that, listen, new teachers who are listening to this, you didn't go through all of the education that you've gone through. You didn't choose this profession to become, um, you know, what Giroux calls a technician, right? You didn't come to just to open a curriculum and to page one, read the script, get the answers, give the multiple choice test. Like we're over that, we're past that. So the curriculum is a course to be run, right? That's the root of the words. That a curriculum is a path. My advice is look at the end of that path. Where does it end up? Does it end up in mastery of skills? Does it end up in in certain core concepts or content? So then the curriculum is. Is a pathway for you to get there but that doesn't mean that that's the best pathway the only pathway the best pathway for all students across all school districts all across the country it may not even be the best pathway for your students across your first hour to your third hour if you know the goal and you feel it internally you know what you're trying to get to, then my advice would be to customize that pathway to best meet the challenges that you face and the kids that are in your room in that hour. For some of them, that might mean acceleration, for some that might mean slowing down or changing um, an assessment, or if some kid has a brilliant idea to take the direction of the conversation this way, but the curriculum on page nine doesn't happen, you know, are we going to be flexible and dynamic with that? Adam said, like, you know, there should be a curriculum, and there should be. The other warning to sort of echo is, when is that curriculum from? We all agree, everybody listening to this will agree, that the future that the kids are entering is one that we cannot currently imagine. If we have a curriculum that is 5, 10, 15 years old, it is already outdated. What are we doing with the curriculum to help prepare kids for an uncertain future? And if the answer is looking back at a future that was was perfectly geared toward 1998 or 2012, then we really need to take a hard look at it. And new teachers can be, again to Adam's point, can be a really helpful voice in that to say, I'm new here, I love what we're doing, I love our goals, I love our objectives, I love our mission. Can we talk about some of the things in here, in this curriculum that are negotiable? What else might we try to better suit for our particular kids or my particular kids that might prepare them better for the end goal?
1: Aaron, how do we know that they're learning that information? What does that assessment piece look like, or what can it look like?
2: Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, right? So if our goals are post-secondary success in an uncertain future, then arguably that the, the, the assessment should be practical application of whatever skills that the students are learning in the closest possible approximation to that environment. That's a a long way of saying probably like a portfolio that demonstrates skills to me is valid because an employer or a a college that says, what skills do you have? And the student says, I'm a creative person. I'm design oriented. By what proof are you design oriented? By what measure? Well, either a grade in a class based on some uh, tests that, that were given, or here's what I've done. Take a look at the website that I built that houses my graphic design portfolio, browse it at your leisure, tell me what you think, and then call me back with a scholarship.
1: That's a very empowering approach to teaching and learning. I can see why students would really value that opportunity to see the practical element of what they're learning in class and how that would connect to future employment or just integrating all of the ideas that they're learning into something tangible. Instead of learning information in a silo, which sometimes curriculum forces us to do as teachers, veteran teachers, as well as new teachers, how might we have those cross-cutting concepts? Or how can we integrate information so that students are showing skills through something like, as you said, a portfolio development of a web page, going out and doing some advocacy in the community?
0: That also requires deep engagement on the part of the student. The student has to be motivated, but I also think that having those opportunities to personalize your own learning and education based on what your passions are can also truly engage students in the work that we do at school. So what should teachers, new teachers especially, be thinking about regarding assessment at this time of the school year? We've started, we're a little ways in, but we haven't gotten so far that we can't really start to think about maybe some new beginnings as well. Adam, share your thoughts on that with us, please.
3: Uh, two kind of broad strokes here. One is to reiterate what Aaron said about what is the goal supposed to be. So at this point of the year, you've settled in a little bit to what you're teaching for about a quarter of the way through the year or so, a little, little shy of that. And now this work should really be done, you know, before school starts to think about what the goal is by the end of a, a semester at the end of a school year, but you still can be designing those authentic assessments and uh, designing the tools that you're gonna use to measure student progress through those learning objectives um, throughout the year. Aaron said that whole thing without using the word authentic. But like, that's (laughs) like, he, he danced around it because that word is bandied about, you know, Oh, we want authentic assessments. And often what that means is I want, you know, really good bubble sheets that ask really good, really pointed questions. And like, no, that's not, that's not what we mean. We mean like close to the actual task at hand. What is the, the thing that we expect somebody to know and be able to do and then do the thing, not answer questions about doing the thing. Like show me evidence of having done the thing. What is the thing? and show me what that looks like. There's that work yet to be done at this point in the school year, but also, in a, I don't know, in a somewhat traditional sense, like you have enough feedback now from kids a quarter of the way through, or you should, you can make mid-course corrections. So what data do you have that's going to tell you that you need to make changes throughout the rest of your time with the students? And that's really any kind of assessment. That, that can be the math test, that can be some early ACT SAT assessments. That can be your things that you've created, where you said, I'm, you know, a couple of times in the first few weeks, we're going to do a, a few little baseline check-ins to see how the kids are doing on the things that we've uh, so that we want them to be able to do. Possibly more importantly, if you don't have assessment data and you don't have feedback eight weeks into your school year, that's a real problem. This is one of those gut checks where you go, Do I have any idea where they are on those things? I I had these intentions. What I want them to know and be able to do. Have I actually gathered any feedback on that? The two things are both looking forward and looking current and back. Where are we and where do we intend to go? I
0: appreciate the thinking that you're looking back and looking forward at the same time, because often in our business, assessment is sometimes thought of as the post-mortem and that there's nothing more that we can do based on what we've learned from the assessment. being able to be forward thinking about what does that assessment tell me that maybe I can do to change some of the outcomes that I found or to find a new way of approaching an idea so that the student can be successful. That's exciting to me. Aaron, could you tell us about where you're coming from regarding assessment for teachers at this time of the year?
2: It's a quarter of the way through. As Adam said, like you've given formative assessments, you've had some summative assessments. And so you've got data to say, here's where each kid is. And if asked by a parent or an administrator or a fellow teacher, you could point to their work and say, here's where they are. The sort of box that I think we need to escape a little bit is that we're sort of talking about students as these sort of entities that we look at, that we measure. We do a lot of telling students where they are We do a good job of showing them where they are, of showing them where they need to be. I don't think we do enough of asking them point blank where they are outside of those measurements. If the goal of the formative and summative assessments is to get kids to a place where they are comfortable and confident in those skills, enough to use them in practical applications, then let's ask them that. Here's a conundrum that I faced every year. I would have kids who scored well. They did their work. I saw improvement and I could say to them like, wow, you're really showing improvement. And then I would give another sort of uh, you know, assignment or something or, or a response. And suddenly their writing would backslide. And I would say, hey, you, you showed me you can do this. And they're like, I don't get it. And I would say, what do you mean you don't get it? I have proof that you get it. I have proof right here. I can tell you that you get it. And they're like, but I don't. So who's the problem with there, right? I'm trying to convince the student of comfort and confidence that they don't have. So what I started doing as a new teacher, and I'm going to really press that new teachers should try this and preface it that it's incredibly vulnerable, is give the students an anonymous survey, like stress the anonymity of it, and ask the questions that you really want the answers to. You've got the numbers and the scores to talk about the skills. But ask them questions like the lessons that my teacher gives me engage my mind. I feel comfortable with these skills. I feel confident in these skills. I look forward to learning this material. The feedback that my teacher gives me is actionable. The feedback helps me grow. The feedback is readable, you know, (laughs) and make it anonymous. And then course correct not only the students, as Adam was saying, not only just where the students are and where they're going, but course correct the way that you're interacting. Because even if the scores are going up, but that really gut check vulnerable anonymous survey is telling you that even though their scores are good, they're not comfortable, then that's the issue. Or that your feedback is not getting them where they need to be. Notice that I'm not putting any questions in there like, I enjoy class or class is fun. This is not entertainment. But ask the questions that you really care the most deeply about as a new teacher, that you're most passionate about. That you want to feel like the students should be saying yes or a great deal to and ask those questions and then deal with the answers and course correct you, you know, your own practice and with your, with your coach and with your administrators to be like, how do I make this survey result get higher?
1: Erin, I'd like to go a little deeper with something. You were getting at student self-assessment. That's so critical. Think about where new teachers are in their own minds at this time of year, just as new teachers becoming into the profession. Share with us, how important is student self-assessment to student growth?
2: I would argue that it is paramount. I would argue that it supersedes any other assessment. And maybe I'm being probably too exaggerated, but students' perception of growth is really, really, really important. A student that is scoring high, but does not perceive their own growth, if asked, then they haven't grown. If you ask that student, have you grown? And they say no, then you are arguing with that student that they have grown. On the other hand, if you have a student that says, you know, I really feel like I've grown leaps and bounds this year. I feel it. I feel different. This is to, you know, to my very beginning opening statement. If that student feels like they've transformed or that they've matured and they're carrying themselves with a new confidence in that skill area or that content area, that is real because it's housed within them. It is an internal perception of growth. And that's really, really valuable. The tricky part of this is, is that For that perception of growth to be real and to be felt, students have to buy into the self-assessment. Are they really taking that self-assessment seriously? This is the million-dollar question. How do you get students to buy into the importance of growth in your skill area? And if they have buy-in, then their own assessment of their growth is what's driving them. And then I would argue that we need only ask them, in what ways have you grown? How can you show us that you've grown? And by what artifacts can you show us that growth? And then I would grade them on that.
1: Erin, what I took from your comments are a couple of things. I was hearing this notion of student internal motivation and ownership, as well as self-actualization. And growth for students will vary depending on where they started or where they are. I'm curious what Adam thinks about this very topic. He's coming at it from a school psych standpoint, but also from a data perspective. What are your ideas for new teachers?
3: I want to echo something that Aaron said, not on this answer, but to an earlier question about how we do a really good job of telling kids lots of things. We tell students how they're doing in this, we tell them, we tell them, tell them, tell them lots of things, what they should care about and what they should be motivated about. But for them, seeing is more important. If they can actually see in front of them, you're coaching them in a way where they can self-evidence what their growth is, you get them to a spot where they can dig in and find it themselves. I think that's pretty darn important because then it's not just score and it's not just us telling them because that's something they can tune out of if they want to, but getting them to a spot where they are vulnerable with their own egos enough to explore their own progress, I think is pretty important. Another thing I wanted to add on this is kind of from like the technical and practical perspective, Several years ago, I was exploring what makes good feedback. What are the attributes of feedback that result in uh, better outcomes for students, you know, more learning, better outcomes on objectives, that kind of stuff. And there were several attributes, you know, it's it's got to be specific and targeted. It's got to be in a place where both the teacher and the students are comfortable with each other. The kid has to feel vulnerable enough to ask hard questions about how they're doing. But also another one that was really important was the immediacy of it. And if you think about like the traditional student takes a test, the test gets scored, the results come back, that may be days or weeks later. But self assessment, both because it's a parallel process, I give like you do the rubric, you kind of work on this together, you self score something because it's a parallel process, but also that they're actually seeing it being done. There can be more immediate feedback to the student, like, i just did this thing and now i'm immediately getting feedback about how i did on this thing how do i feel about this right now and what do i need to do to get better at this thing that we're talking about years ago aaron will remember this we started giving practice acts to kids on campus and we tried to imitate the test day as best we possibly could in paper forms and bubble sheets and and it used to be like if we did a, some a practice on something like this horse all it didn't exist but when we first did it, it might take a while for us to score. And we got that system down to where the kid could get feedback two hours after they took it. And that was with it on paper. Like they gave it on paper, they brought it to our office, we scored them, I generated reports and I emailed those reports out to the kids as soon as I possibly could. It's like the same day they would have the scores. And I think we forget how important the immediacy of feedback is. The way I framed it to the teachers and why it was so important to have this this down on a tight timeline was that you want to associate the feeling of how I did with real feedback about how I did. And we can ask and discuss lots of things about whether ACT and ICT are valid, but the, the reality is they have practical implications for students like admissions and scholarships and things. So like we do want them to do well on it, regardless of our objectives as a school. And giving that them the immediate feedback is extremely important because it, it tells them exactly what the outcome of that product was. Like how well did you do on this thing and where do you need to learn? And Aaron also mentioned a teacher being vulnerable about getting feedback from students and asking surveys and don't be afraid to give them a gut check too like not just how am I doing and how is this class going but also things like how do you feel you were doing on these objectives I think Aaron you, you kind of touched on it but I want to like bring a really fine point to it based on today how masters do you feel these things are that you and I agreed you were going to learn by the end of this term you, we made a contract with each other that you were going to learn and be able to do these things if it were over today, how successful would you be on this independently? You got to create a culture, but that's okay to ask those questions. But that gut check in a survey may not just be for you. It may also be for the students to make them feel icky. Like, you know what? I haven't really done the work. I have not put the time and the energy and the effort into learning this. And I still have time and it's best to do that now. So it's not the postmortem. We treat assessment as a postmortem because that's customarily what we do. We give the summative at the end with how did they do rather than asking the question ongoing, how are we doing? How are you doing? How are we doing together? That's the, one of the goals of formative assessment.
0: Formative assessment, implies that there's a conversation between the teacher and the student and that you're really truly communicating with that student about how they're doing. And it gets also back to that point of how can I support you better? What do I need to do for you to help you achieve the goals that we've set? And I also think it's important that the student understands that these aren't just goals for them as students, but the teacher has also made that commitment that these are goals that we want to see everyone in our class achieve together and that there has to be that sense of community within the classroom in order for everyone to grow. And people are going to grow at different rates and stages, but that we're always there to support one another in our growth and I as the teacher stand beside you and behind you to support that. New teachers, though, sometimes get a little bit nervous when it comes to developing assessments that are truly connected to the objectives. They often will revert to the assessment that might be in the book or an assessment that was in the file cabinet from the previous teacher. What are those challenges for new teachers when it comes to developing assessments that are connected to your learning objectives? What are the real watchwords here, Adam?
3: I'll use the word inertia uh, in that it's very easy to use what has been done before, whether that came out of a filing cabinet from the teacher who retired from the position you're walking into, or it's really easy to fall back on the textbook. That might not be a bad practice if the textbook is your curriculum. So if it is, then maybe that's a great assessment. Now, should the textbook be the curriculum? That's a different question. But like, if that's what you're doing, then that's probably appropriate because it's aligned. What I have found in interacting with teachers, and we we did a lot of work a number of years ago on designing good, common, formative assessments, is they literally did not know how to build them. Like, they just did not know how to be like, okay, well, over this, like, let's say it's a summit of assessment, I taught three different target standards during this time. The idea of intentionally building a matrix of, I want to make sure that we ask four questions about each one of these standards, and then designing a good rubric aligned to that, that was very foreign to our veteran teachers. Some of the newer ones, I think had seen some of that, but the ones who came out in an era or maybe the textbook was the curriculum, why would I do this? Like, I just, I want tell me what the percentage is, the number of, of questions they answered correctly, and that's the score. Like, that's all that I really care about. But when you dive into it and you want to design good assessments that are aligned to learning objectives, then literally align them to the objectives. And they, they just weren't taught that. Decide, first of all, and, and Aaron mentioned this earlier, like, what is the goal? Okay, then we design a curriculum that is aligned with those goals, and we should design assessments. These are like basic curricular questions. What do you want them to know and be able to do? How are we gonna build materials and experiences to support that work? And then how will we get feedback? It involves a lot of energy. They're hard to build. If you are used to a practice where you just kind of throw questions on a page, like being intentional about designing assessments takes some real work. And unfortunately, I think it's often an afterthought. Well, I will do the thing. I will teach the material. And then three days before the assessment is given, I'll pull together some questions. I think that's backward. We should design what the outcome should look like and then backwards map those things in the proper order. What are we intending them to know and be able to do? What would that look like at the end? and then build the experiences, I said them out of order earlier, build the experiences to support that so that I can move them toward whatever that target is. Also, some people are locked in. So depending on where you are, and where you're coming in, I mentioned this earlier, like sometimes you do kind of have to fall in line, like we do expect you to give this common assessment, like there is an expectation that needs to occur. Don't be afraid to say like, this common formative assessment isn't very good in the best possible way that you can, like, does this really assess the things that we said that we want them to know and be able to do? You want to be careful not sitting next to the teacher who designed it four years ago and didn't be and be nasty about it uh you got to be careful um because you're going to damage your relationships with your team i think probably the the core word of, of this response here is just the intentionality be, like, be intentional with the assessments design them in such a way that when when they do this thing you're going to get the right feedback that will allow you to know whether they have learned what you wanted them uh, to learn during the activity
0: thank you adam sometimes i've found that the assessment is a mismatch to what really happened during the instruction. So even if your instruction was good, if there's not a good alignment and a match for the assessment to actually measure the things that you've been working on, you still don't have a good sense of what students have learned or how they've grown during a specific period of instruction.
1: This finishes part one for our episode on assessment and data literacy. Be on the lookout for part two to hear the other advice that Aaron and Adam share. The conversation today hopefully opens up for you discussion about strategies for new teachers as they use assessment to inform instruction. For our audience, we so appreciate your listening to today's podcast, and we hope you'll become a regular follower. Feel free to share feedback with us about this podcast or topics you want to hear about. You can do that by going to newteachersguide.org or follow us on Twitter. You can DM us at newteachertalk1. Also, join us the final Monday of every month from 7 to 8 p.m. for our monthly Twitter chat. And remember, as a new teacher, we are here to help you.